Hello, this is OA On Air, the official podcast of O'Neill & Associates. I'm Kyan Isaacson, and welcome back. We took a quick holiday hiatus last week for July 4th, but it's great to be back in the studio. This week on 321 Go, Cosmo Macero and I talk about the ongoing standoff between National Grid and the gas workers, all the changing ways Americans are dining in and out these days, and the newest hotel suite in Boston at the Boston Harbor Hotel. Later in the show, Jeremy Crockford of O'Neill & Associates and I talked to Peter Ubertaccio, the now Dean of the School of Arts and Sciences at Stonehill College in Easton. He's also known for his political commentary and insights, so in addition to talking higher ed, we talk a little politics and policy too. And in two minutes with Tom this week, our CEO Tom O'Neill talks more SCOTUS news, more specifically this week's announcement of Brett Kavanaugh for the Supreme Court. And Tom talks a little bit about how to navigate some of the more difficult political conversations you may be encountering at parties and barbecues this summer. First up, three, two, one, go. Let's talk about something important. Hello and welcome to 321 Go on OA On Air, the official podcast series of O'Neill & Associates, New England's leader in public affairs. My name is Cosmo Macero, your host for 321 Go, where each week we take a brief but purposeful look at three important topics in the world of public affairs, business, government, culture, and the economy. In this installment of 321 Go, around Massachusetts, more than 1,200 union workers for a national grid are now into their third week of being locked out by the utility giant. It's starting to take a real toll on workers and their families, we'll discuss. And we'll learn why convenience is king when it comes to meal time in America. A new survey shows that one of the most important factors in making food and meal decisions for American families and individuals is how easy it is to prepare or order the meal. No surprise, the easier the better, Americans say. We'll dig into that a bit and try not to bite off more than we can chew. Finally, how'd you like to stay in a $15,000 hotel suite? That's $15,000 per night. Yes, it's a real thing at Boston's top five-star hotel, and there's a real market being served with this kind of luxury. We'll explain. Joining me here on 321 Go is Kyanne Isaacson. Hey, a communication strategist with O'Neill & Associates and the official voice of OA on air. Kayam, we've got a lot to get to, so we'll get right into it. But first, let me ask how you enjoyed the July 4th holiday. It was great. It was hot. I'm not going to lie. I kind of failed at July 4th this year. I did not see any fireworks. Me and my family were in bed a little early, but that's what happens when you have young kids. An epic fourth fail. <laughs> that's me. All right, then. That's, let's... that's my hashtag of the summer. <laughs> got it. Okay, then. Let's get to it. Up first, National Grid locked out more than 1,200 members of the United Steelworkers on June 25th after contract negotiations broke down. Managers and outside contractors are being used to deal with the flood of service issues that has resulted from the lockout. The biggest contract issue, a dispute over National Grid's proposed changes to the company's health care plan, as well as benefits for new hires. In addition to the obvious loss of wages as of July 1st, these workers and their families are no longer receiving health care through the company. We got a glimpse this week of what that impact looks like. The unions are scrambling to use emergency medical plans and to register people with mass health. And that individual workers and their families 
dealing with serious health issues are trying to figure out how to cope with that. Cayenne, one of the big concerns in a situation like this is that some people will simply try to avoid medical care altogether during a period like this and potentially defer important appointments or procedures. That's something that we have to worry about if you're in this situation. What do you think? I think it's one of the examples to me of how really nobody wins in a lockout. Uh, you know, it doesn't make anyone look good. No one's no one's getting a, an upper hand here, really. I think that people tend to dig their feet in a little bit more in situations like this once they're angered and, and feel pushed and provoked. Um, I think what we often see, not just in this, but in a, a number of lockout situations, is a shift in management starts to look at their employees as union members and less as their employees. And technically we're really all supposed to be on the same side here um but in this situation nobody loses more than these workers who are are you know there's been stories out there they're deferring biopsies and and surgeries and you've got you've got got one worker with with who's 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 battling cancer you've got a a nine-year-old uh girl with a rare lung disease you've got you know these are these are real people really being impacted i gotta say that the you know the struggle between management and capital versus labor it's age old it's part of sort of the the, the American economic experience uh, it has uh, you know, union influence has declined this recent Janus ruling by the Supreme Court while specific to public employee unions I believe uh, will have a, a, a an impact a chilling effect on labor unions across the economy um, yet we still see this kind of dispute it's you know it's still um, it's rock'em, sock'em, it's tough, and it works both ways, right? The, the National Grid's playing hardball here. Everybody the, is. The other side plays hardball just, just as much, and we're talking about this particular steelworkers, a couple of locals, but if you look across the economy in New England, healthcare, the Mass Nurses Association, education, mass teachers, you know, the, they'll, give the, they'll give the Teamsters and the Longshoremen a run for their money on how, the, how tough they are on, on any day. But it, it does work both ways, and, and it's tough to see this kind of human impact. It is, and I, I think those stories need to stay at the forefront for uh, management to see as well because they, it's not just about numbers. It's not just about you know, people on, on paper, but the effect you're having on, on real people's lives. Indeed it is. Uh, big bargaining session coming up in a matter of days. We'll be, we'll be keeping an eye on this, but an important, important story. Next up, a new study by the marketing and food service brand consultant Acosta is telling us some insightful things about American families and mealtime. The headline conclusion, convenience, speed, and ease are some of the most important things today when it comes to household meals. And convenient meal solutions, that's code for not really cooking, have become more popular as they become more available. An important distinction is that healthy meals are still a priority for American families and speed and convenience does not have to mean unhealthy, high fat, high calorie, and so forth. Cayenne, what do you think? I think what's great about this study is that it, it stressed the importance that people are trying to eat healthy, and there's just nothing bad about that. I'm yeah. sure healthcare providers across the country are happy to hear that. But we also all have a lot less time than we used to. So convenience is key and is going to continue to be key. Uh, there's umpteen different meal prep delivery services out there. In addition, restaurants are now doing delivery. Like it used to be that if you wanted to order out for your family to do takeout, you had what maybe Chinese food, 
and pizza and sub shops. And that's just not the way it is anymore. You can order real meals from real restaurants, get it delivered, whether it's from the restaurant or outsourced places like, you know, Grubhub and Uber Eats and uh, among them. I don't think this is a trend that's going away. I think it's going to continually gear in that direction. Yeah. I tend to think that that the um, the makers here are creating the market, meaning as they're introducing these services, people are realizing... They're catching on. They're catching on, and people and people are uh, they're creating more of a demand just by being creative in how they introduce these solutions. But the numbers are, you know, it, it tells the story. Half fifty-one percent of uh, um, uh, of people surveyed here, families surveyed, they order out regularly. Seventy-seven percent of millennials they report ordering delivery food. Uh, to your point, it's not just pizza and subs at all. You've got a variety of different things that people are ordering uh, with regularity. And then you've got the introduction of these meal delivery services, this I, I, cooking light, meaning cooking light is in your kind of cooking. I, you know, I mean, you are, it's cooking by numbers, but it's designed to just kind of take all the thinking out of it. I sometimes feel it makes it more complicated, but it is a convenient solution, right? It's a, it's a convenient way of, uh, of, um, uh, of preparing a meal for your family. But you're more of a chef kind of a cook when you cook. You like to cook. I do like to and cook. And you make, like, really good food. I try food. For others who may not be that kind of a cook, like myself, or are trying to cook on, like, a Tuesday night when, you know, things are crazy, the cook-by-number thing might be a little bit easier. Because one of the most annoying parts about cooking, in my opinion, is the measuring out of spices and condiments and sauces and things. And then a lot of these cooking light, as you call it, delivery services, all that's done. Yeah. So you're taking the guesswork and, and the sort of annoyance. So let, let, let me make a confession here, right? I, mean, I, lo- I love to cook. I try to cook for my family a couple times a week, right? It, it, as far as like my own meals, and, and, and it, it fits right into this narrative of convenience and speed. I got to tell you, I, I consume an alarmingly high percentage of my meals while operating a motor vehicle, okay? I'm or ta- at your desk. Or, or at my desk, <laughs> absolutely. So it fits right into my lifestyle. I'm looking for something fast, and 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 it's really hard to live that lifestyle and eat healthy. But but speed and convenience um, is really important. I got to kick out of one thing in here, and and you might too. Um, one one finding here about kids eating out with their parents and staying plugged in on the Wi-Fi, on the device. I mean, I have been there so many times. It's like, enough, put it away, enough with the Fortnite, turn off Madden, and let's eat for crying out loud. And, and, and this is an American trend. Your kids are older, whereas for my four-year-old, sometimes I bring the iPad and I'm like, why don't you watch this while we eat? Absolutely. So there's a difference. I do, and I will admit I am guilty of sometimes checking an email or checking something while sitting at the table and I'm trying to be a little bit more conscious about it because it drives me crazy when I look around. It used to be that sitting down to have a meal together was your time to sit down and have a meal together to talk. And it's just becoming less and less commonplace, unfortunately. I'm a real offender in that way also. Uh, uh, And luckily people around the table are very good about pointing it out and I'm trying to get better at it. Okay, convenience, speed, mealtime in America. There it is. And finally, 
Well, if you think you've seen real luxury, you ain't seen nothing yet. Unless you've been to the John Adams Presidential Suite at the five-star Boston Harbor Hotel. The premier waterfront hotel at Rose Wharf in Boston has converted some former top-floor meeting space into a $15,000 per night luxury suite with, well, I guess this is arguably the single greatest waterfront view in the city of Boston. This thing has amenities and features up the yin-yang, and the service is obviously impeccable because that's the cornerstone of the Boston Harbor Hotel. And for $15,000 a night, you know just about anything you want, you're going to get it. Now, a big question, Cayenne, is what's the market for this? It's not the average Joe. It's not even the average millionaire Joe or millionaire Joseph. Uh, but there is indeed a real market for this. <clears throat> as, as Jerry Seinfeld might have asked in the heyday of Seinfeld, who are these people <laughs> that are paying $15,000 a night? It's an excellent question. I am not one of them. <laughs> I don't think I'm the, the Boston Harbor Hotel's target uh, list. But I would like to just put it out there that I'm happy to take a trial run of course. in the John Adams presidential suite if they feel like they need some more soft openings or test cases. I'm happy they need to a, do they that. Need, they need feedback. They do, Right? That's that's my thinking. Uh, my initial feedback, uh, the pictures are gorgeous. That view really does seem arguably like the best waterfront view. That terrace alone is amazing. And, and I know they're going for this, and, and, and I think they're succeeding. It is high-end luxury. It is not opulence vegas gold leaf it is it is absolutely sort of the brahmin boston kind of version of high high end luxury Mm -hmm. if something like that exists but and it's it is it's for fifteen thousand a night you get this amazing suite 4200 square feet which is i mean bigger than most people's homes um that in and of itself is amazing there's no mini bar it's full full bottles for, for everyone out there who's wondering, and you don't have to pay for what you take. But it's also this, like, specialized chef's list. You can get an, a special meal cooked for you in room. They're really taking luxury to the ultimate level, and I think that's what you deserve for $15,000 a night. And, I, I mean, I'd love the opportunity to stay there. I don't see it happening in my future anytime soon, but I'd be willing to do that. And, and realistically, <clears throat> we're talking about very, very, very high net worth people who are traveling to the city, and, and they're here every day with this kind of resources for medical care, for long-term recovery and, and, and medical care, certainly on concert, uh, shows. concert shows. Another piece of the market is celebrities, yeah. entertainers, people who have and kind of are expected to use that kind of money, to spend that kind of money on a hotel suite. And the market exists in Boston. So I guess it's a very New York and L.A. little piece of Boston. and, 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 and New York and it, state of mind here in Boston. That's right. And it shows up right here on the waterfront at Rose Wharf at, at the premier hotel in Boston, the, the five-star Boston Harbor Hotel. It's a great spot. Looks like it's a phenomenal room. And, um, yeah, Boston Harbor Hotel. I'm, I'm here and, and ready for, for a night over. I think I'll only... I'll probably only get to experience it through the photos, but that's, uh, but that's okay, too. We can dream. All right. All right, Cayenne, thanks. Hey, that's going to do it for this week's edition of 321 Go. Cayenne, a pleasure as always, and we'll see you next time. I'll be here. All right. 321 Go is recorded in Studio 10A, just off the historic Tip O'Neill Room, at our building in the heart of Government Center, Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Macero.
That's all for 321GO. Up next, Peter Ubertaccio talks about higher ed and the continued importance of the humanities and traditional majors for students. This is Jeremy Crockford from O'Neill and Associates here with my colleague Kyan Isaacson. And we are about to talk to uh, Stonehill College Dean Peter Ubertasio, who is well known around the state for uh, political analyst uh, positions, sometimes on TV and radio, especially during elections. Uh, he has recently been given a new title as Stonehill has divided into two major schools within the college, and uh, he is now dean. So, Peter, if you want to talk a little bit about that. Sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, Stonehill's recently uh, reorganized into two schools, the Leo J. Meehan School of Business, which is headed up by my colleague, Dean Deborah Salvucci, and the School of Arts and Sciences. And I was appointed the first dean of the School of Arts and Sciences just about one year ago. It is a great time for the college. We're really confident about the future. Uh, you know, we're a fairly young institution as far as institutions of higher ed go. And uh, this is a sign, I think, of our maturity and growing. In addition to reorganizing into two schools, we're also adding graduate programs. Now you have a Boston Business Journal op-ed in, which is not unrelated to the, the way that Stonehill has decided to emphasize two disciplines. Um, your op-ed talks a lot about the importance of keeping the humanities, keeping the traditional majors, and, and I think the way Stonehill has decided to go forward you are emphasizing business. You are letting people know that it is skills-based, career-based education. But your side of the house is also keeping very much in the, the idea that an education needs to be centered in the humanities. Can you talk a little bit about what your op-ed said? Well, sure. There's been a lot of movement in higher ed lately across the country. Uh, many colleges and universities are doing away with their core humanities and they've decided to focus on uh, technical training, pre-professional pursuits. Um, those areas are not without merit, and at Stonehill, we have always had a mixture of arts and sciences and business and pre-professional programs, so that's part of our DNA. Uh, but we believe that the humanities are core to all of those fields, and uh, we've decided that we're going to emphasize them, and. Uh, not only to continue to support them, but hopefully watch them grow. Our business students all have to take our core general education program, which is firmly rooted in the humanities. Uh, they have to take literature and history, uh, philosophy, religious studies. Uh, we want them thinking and acting ethically and morally. And we see no reason to turn away from that. In fact, many of our employers uh, are telling us that this is where they want to see students uh, well-trained in those core humanities because the careers of tomorrow are going to emphasize things like creativity and problem-solving. And so we think that the, the humanities, and we know actually given the data, that, that our students are well-prepared for future career endeavors based on that core humanities program. When I think about the humanities, what strikes me as most important is what it teaches you about reading and writing. I think you can usually tell which people have never taken an English course or never had to read a book and then analyze and write about it. Right. I, I think that's exactly 
Right, and you know we want our students to be able to do that across disciplines. And when you when you get rid of the humanities, you're really not giving the students the opportunity to have to think and read critically to analyze difficult concepts, but from a historical perspective, and then from uh, the perspective of a political scientist or sociologist. Or if you're really cutting back and you're not looking at those core natural sciences, you know all of those fields that are based in a school of arts and sciences help us to understand how it is we um, accumulate knowledge and how knowledge builds upon uh, introductory steps, intermediate steps before you get to advanced. And I'm now, you know, I have three teenagers at home and so I struggle, they struggle with math from time to time, right? I I feel their pain. Sure. And so, you know, one of them in particular will, will tell me something that I know I said when I was young, which is I will never need to know this. And what we what we know to be true, the response is, well, you may not be using geometry or trigonometry, but you will be solving problems. And the humanities help us how uh, to understand how we can solve difficult problems. And it's not just the content, which again, I can make a case for the content itself, uh, but it's the process of learning uh, that the humanities help us further. And when you cut back on that and you suggest that everything should just be about uh, training for a future job, you're actually, I think, doing your students a disservice because the humanities have in the past and will continue to be um, a great place for students to learn how to adapt in a modern workplace. In reading your op-ed, it reminded me about the ongoing discussions and disagreements over teaching for the MCAS and the fear that teachers may get caught up teaching for the MCAS rather than teaching students more generally. MCAS testing begins early on in life, and if we're starting to approach education at all levels as more of preparation for a specific skill or subject or career path, then we're forgetting all the so-called extras that I and I think many others would argue help us become more well-rounded people and professionals. You know, it's that's that's a raging debate, as you know. I mean, I think there's there's nothing wrong with assessment, uh, but schools and uh, school districts really need to figure out whether it's in their students' best interests to focus so uh, much on the assessment piece and have to cut back on other things. Uh, that are important to human knowledge and understanding and empathy and 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 future knowledge things like the arts and you know because typically the arts and music are the the first things to go when you have a testing regime that is that is onerous and then things like physical education right so we, we end up losing things in our school day at the lower levels that I think are valuable unto themselves even if assessment is also an important part of it I think um, I think that we have to strike the balance, which is when I see at the higher ed level, schools choosing to do away with those core humanity subjects. I think that they, they're they not really working hard to find the appropriate balance. It's uh, in your field, uh, political science, it, it is a little terrifying to think of people getting an education that does not include looking back at some of the great mistakes and mess ups of history. If you're going to be a political leader, you'd think you'd, you'd really want to have a, something like John F. Kennedy had, a deep, deep grasp of the history of leadership. I think you can see when you elect somebody who maybe doesn't have that kind of deep, deep grasp, you, you start making mistakes that were made 
a long time ago. When you when you're teaching your kids, is that something that you think about because they're obviously interested in going into politics? Yes, and you know one of the benefits of a school such as ours is the students have to grapple with history and literature, and then in a, in a field like political science, we're always encouraging them to take things like economics and sociology, so that they they leave their major with a firm grasp and understanding, if not mastery always, of of history and American history in particular. My field is American political institutions. And so we, we see playing out before us what happens when um, you have uh, folks in power who care very little for history and are uh, beyond all of the other issues that we see today. I think that there's a, there's a real concern when, when folks are not thinking about that and uh, using that as they, as they move various public policies or actions. It could be a problem if you think Frederick Douglass is still alive, for instance. It could indeed be a problem if you Just don't really... Just as an really, example. Yeah, you know, if you, if you don't really know who Frederick Douglass is and what he stood for and his complex history, then I do think that's a problem. Yeah. Thanks to Peter for joining us. If you want to hear more from our interview with Peter, we also spent some time talking to him about politics and the current state of affairs in both Massachusetts and the country for our OA On Air Extra. But before you do that, up next, we have two minutes with Tom. Hello, Tom. How are you today? Diane, I'm great. It's nice to be with you. It's nice to be with you, too. It's been a while. We took a little break. We took a break over the 4th of July, didn't we? We did. Uh, But prior to our July 4th week hiatus, we talked about the Supreme Court. And obviously, news of that continues with uh, the president announcing his nominee this week, Brett Kavanaugh. What do you think? I think it's the name of the week. Um, and, And I think it's got both sides of the political spectrum going a little a little off the off balance emotionally, to be very honest with you. Um, the the right is saying that he's a perfect he's a perfect judge to be in the Supreme Court mold. That he uh, is brilliant and he comes with all the requisite uh, uh, values and and assets that a judge sitting on the Supreme Court would need. The right of the, the left, of course, is saying that uh, this will have far-reaching impacts to all of the social issues that liberals care about. And it's not just issues of abortion and women's rights. It's the issues of immigration. It's health care. And, and um, I, I just think that it's uh, just kind of an overwhelming period of time as people kind of judge for themselves what the impact of this is going to be, not for the next five or ten years, but for the next generation or two. He's young. He's 53 years old. He's 53, which means he could be on that court, sitting on that court for the next 25, 30, or 35 years. Wow. That's a long time. Well, it is a long time. And it, and it seems now that the majority of, of the Supreme Court justices sitting are on the right side of the philosophical equation. And the older members are on the left side of the, of the, of the same equation. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's fascinating from a historic point of view. And it's troubling from an emotional and social point of view for so many people. And Democrats have said that they're going to fight this. They're going to fight incredibly hard, but it's a rough road for them to 
when well, like I said there's a whole panoply of issues that are going to be dealt with here it's not just women's rights it's not just the issue of abortion being over overrode it's or overridden it's 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 issues like health care and immigration that will have a far-reaching effect on this on this country um, when the Supreme Court makes a decision it permeates through the entire system of society um, just a kind reminder you know it is uh, it is the the summer season, people are going to be joining in families and they're going to be joining with friends around the barbecue and backdoor parties and cocktail parties and tends, uh, tensions tend to flare up a little bit. I, I've gone through this, this whole 16, 18 month period where we've had a, a president of the United States who I don't agree with, but I'm convinced myself, I've convinced myself of one thing, I'm not going to lose a friend or a family member over it. So it's good attitude. People, I hope people go through, you know, these summer months enjoying their their, their summer out, outside activities and social activities, and, and keep that in mind. Any any tips and tricks? Anything that's worked for you? Well, I've learned how to bite my tongue uh, <laughs> <laughs> to a point where it's about one third the size that it once was eighteen months ago. But um, you know, you just have to turn a cheek, and if you can, it's okay to disagree, but just do it as, as civilly and as politely as you possibly can. Okay. Words to live by. Those are words to live by. So we'll take that. We've got a couple, we've still got a couple months of summer left, even though some people think July 5th is the unofficial end. But there's still time. That's exactly right. My father used to say, you know, after July 4th, it's over. The summer is over. Well, the summer didn't come until almost the 1st of July. That's true. Weather-wise. So we've got a couple of nice months of, of summer wind, of weather to, to, uh, to enjoy. And civility first. Civility and politeness. Hey, it's nice to be with you, Kayan. Well, thank you, Tom. That's it for this week's episode of OA On Air. Don't forget to tune in and listen to our OA On Air extra features this week. We've got Peter Ubertaccio talking politics, and in another feature, our team talks to the executive director from Stand for Children, an education advocacy group in Massachusetts that is working to make sure every child has access to a quality education. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe. You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Talk to you next week. OA On Air is developed, recorded, and produced in our Boston office here in Government Center. Production by Brooke O'Meara Science. And content creation by the O'Neill & Associates team. Music is provided by Ben Sound and Long Zijun. To stay up to date with us here at OA On Air, be sure to subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes.